1 Timothy chapter 4 is where we're headed this evening. We, 1 Timothy 4, that's right. We're taking a look at Paul's five faithful sayings that he shared with Titus and Timothy there at the end of his life and end of his ministry. Uh, many long years serving the Lord, culminating into what we call the pastoral epistles, and embedded within those pastoral epistles are five what we're calling faithful sayings, labeled as such by the Apostle Paul. They are five key and trustworthy statements that Paul doesn't want us to miss as we live out our Christian faith. Tonight we've come to the third saying on the list. Probably most of us are familiar with it or have heard it talked about at one point or another. But more than the first two were, this saying is sort of nested within some other ideas that Paul has been developing in the surrounding verses. And we don't want to tear the principle just out of its context. So I'm going to read the section, giving the greater flow of thought, and then we'll focus in on the saying itself. So be sure to have 1 Timothy chapter 4 in front of you there on your lap as, so you can follow along and see what we're seeing here. Paul begins in verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer." If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. These things command and teach. So bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Whenever I hear that verse, I just can't help but think of the TV show Survivor. Anybody a Survivor fan in here? Oh man, be a, become a Survivor fan. I was a hater once too, but man, it's a great social experiment. Survivor, still running strong. It's been around long enough that I'm sure most of you have a basic understanding of how the show works. It's a reality game show. Contestants are stranded on an island, and over the course of 39 days, they compete to outwit, outplay, and outlast one another, and they vote off players until finally the one winner is crowned as the sole survivor given a check for a million dollars. I think of this show whenever I hear this verse because there's usually someone competing on Survivor who comes into the game with perfectly sculpted, rippling muscles, right? I mean, they've, they've dedicated their lives to looking muscular. They tower over the average-looking people. But you know what? If you looked at a list of the winners of the last 36 seasons of Survivor, they're very rarely that guy. There's one or two that are kind of the muscle-bound guy, but almost... Uh, never that guy. In fact, a lot of times those Hercules, He-Man looking guys, they actually don't do very well in the challenges that require real world strength, agility, and endurance. 
Uh, you kind of want the tubby dude on your team usually because they can pick up stuff and run with stuff, and uh, it's pretty interesting. Visible muscles aren't always indicators of the kind of strength required to win the game. And they are sometimes mostly about the show, right, rather than the substance. And you probably know some people like that. I mean, their body has been built for show. It's kind of like a show car. Do you drive this car? Oh, no. We just bring it out and we show it to people. Do you ever start it? Do you ever drive it? No, no. It just goes on the trailer and off the trailer. Kind of the same idea. Well, here in our text, Paul's talking a lot about uh, some different issues like diet and exercise, people showing so-called spiritual muscles in front of others. But that's not what this faithful saying is about. This one is all about true godliness. The faithful saying is what we call verse 8b. Here it is. Godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. That's the faithful saying on the list. Now, there are some Bible commentators who feel that the faithful saying perhaps comes after verse 9, not before. But when you read a variety of people, uh, a strong linguistic and logical case uh, is made by guys much smarter than me showing that Paul is talking about verse 8b, not verse 10 when he says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Paul wants us to know just how important and how profitable godliness is. So what exactly does Paul mean by godliness? If I say, what does it mean to be godly, and I had all of us write down a working definition, they would probably have some pretty good variety to it. If we turned them in and started reading them off, we probably all have slightly different um, uh, ways of expressing what we think it means to be godly. So what does Paul mean by godliness? If he wants us to pursue it, we need to have a working definition of what he's talking about. And the issue is that the natural man, the sort of human way of thinking, the knee-jerk answer to that question when we're trying to define what godliness is, uh, well, we naturally think it's very easy for us to think of godliness as an ever-increasing list of good things we do and bad things that we don't do, and that this list is just growing and growing exponentially, uh, you know, like some kind of expansive tax code that really godly people are following to the letter. It's easy to think of godliness as moral performance. And while obeying God is, of course, a vital and non-negotiable characteristic of the Christian faith, we should notice that in this passage, Paul is actually warning Timothy against the kind of mindset that simply sees godliness as a list of legalistic rules. He's saying, hey, there's people coming and they're telling you, here are the rules you follow in order to be the best at your spirituality, in order to have the strongest, most flexed spiritual muscles. And Paul says, that's the wrong mindset. Instead, he says, I want you to pursue godliness. Rather, Paul had explained in the previous chapter, 1 Timothy 3, that godliness is Jesus. We find that in 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says the mystery of godliness is this. And then he goes on to describe the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so for us to walk in godliness uh, is to be in faithful communion with our Savior. It's not that we perform some work in order to merit favor from God. That's always the wrong answer. 
It was wrong for the people Paul's talking about. It was wrong for the Pharisees. It's always the wrong answer to say, I work, I perform, I do things that are comfortable or difficult or whatever, and thereby I win or merit or earn God's favor. Then God has to pay me in his grace or in his favor or in his blessing. That's not what the Bible teaches. Rather, God is looking for us to be in communion with him. We accept the gift of his godliness and trust him to do what he wants to do in our minds, in our hearts, and in our attitudes. Yes, the Lord has a lot of things he wants us to do, a lot of changes he wants to make in the way that we think, in the way that we behave, in the way that we see the world, in the way that we approach life. But those are his empowerings, his workings, his gift to us, not things that we uh, endeavor on our own and then prove ourselves to be worthy to God. Big, big difference in those kinds of attitudes. We walk in submission to what God wants to do, going his way, being molded and developed according to his power and purpose. R. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappelle wrote it this way, Jesus is the essence and the wellspring of godliness. He lived in godliness. And now, as ascended Lord, He gives us godliness. Godliness is not external, but it is the inner power to live a godly life. It is active, kinetic obedience that springs from a reverent awe of God. So I think that's a pretty good working definition as long as we focus in on this. Jesus is the essence of godliness. He is the source of godliness, and he gives godliness to us as his people. We don't go mining for godliness on our own and then show up to Jesus and say, look what I made for you. That's the complete wrong way of trying to approach the spiritual life. So now that we have a working definition of what godliness is, we can pay attention to what Paul says about it, which is that we should exercise godliness and that godly living is profitable. What does it mean to exercise godliness? You'll see that in a few of the earlier verses. Well, Paul gives a lot of tangible means of godliness throughout the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, But they boil down to this, live out your Christianity, develop your faith, not for show muscles like the dudes on Survivor. Well, your muscles look good, but they sure don't work real well when you need to like dive down under the water and pick up a chest and come and undo it and carry it across the sand. They're show muscles, right? That's not what we're looking for. Uh, It means that we live out our Christianity and do so by really exercising our faith. The word Paul uses is the word from which we get gymnasium from. It's gymnasio or whatever. I can't pronounce Greek. But the Greeks, it was the place that the Greeks and the Romans would go to devote themselves to train for the great games, right? If you were a Greek headed to the gymnasium, you were going to devote the whole of who you were to the pursuit of competing in the great games so that you were ready to run your race or to perform your activity uh, that you might lay hold of that crown of victory. And so that's the image Paul is painting in our minds. That's the exercise mindset Paul wants us to have concerning godliness. And he says that it will be profitable for us. By looking at the context and the ideas in our passage, we get a good sense of what Paul means when he says that. First, we should note that godliness is profitable on a personal level. It's profitable for you. 
Paul encouraged Timothy that as he lived out his God-given godliness, he was going to keep his spiritual life personally nourished, verse 6. He would protect his heart from error, verse 7. He would continue to mature into the man God was making him to be. He would actually get to enjoy life by receiving the blessings God gives to his people, verses 3 through 5. I mean, it was going to be of great personal benefit. It was a great personal investment. He was going to receive a great return on that investment of godliness personally. Uh, So often the idea of godliness or, you know, holiness or being, you know, a pious spiritual person, it gets falsely associated with subtraction, right? The taking away of things, the missing out on things. Uh, It's sometimes called asceticism, which is a severe form of self-denial where enjoyment of any kind is bad, and you just keep taking things away from your life so that everyone sees just how pious you are. Oh, you're so spiritual, you're willing to just take away anything and, do, and you know, drain your life of joyful experiences and drain your life of, of blessings and look how hard your life is and it's because you're so uh, holy and it's because you're so spiritual is the idea. But Paul was talking to Timothy directly about this in chapter 4. He's talking about people who are coming and saying, hey, if you really want to be a a follower of Jesus, you really want to be a Christian, you really want to be spiritual, you have to be an ascetic. You can't get married. You can't eat any of this food. You have to do this. You have to do that. That's what real spirituality is. And Paul said to Timothy, hey, look, there are people coming who are going to say, here's all the things you have to take out of your life, otherwise God's mad at you. You have to eat a certain diet to be godly. You can't be married and be godly. But then Paul pointed out that that kind of ritual religion is actually a counterfeit of Christianity. It is a counterfeit godliness which denies the good gifts God wants to give to his people. We look at what Paul says earlier in the passage, and he says, look, these are things God wants to give to you to bless your life and and to help you and for you to enjoy the life that you're living these things that God created to be received with thanksgiving are now being labeled as evil or sacrilegious. And Paul cuts through all of that stuff, and he says that true godliness is personally profitable, not just for spiritual maturity, but it also helps us to enjoy the day-to-day blessings God wants to give. You know, God is not a miser. He, God isn't pinching spiritual pennies and saying, I, I really can't pour out much grace in your life or pour out much joy in your life today. I'm fresh out. We, you know, we're having a joy drought, and so you only get five drops of joy per person per day now. Sorry, that's how it works. That's not who God is. He's the God who has the storehouses of heaven who's pouring out grace on top of grace. Talking, in the Bible talks about how our joy may be full and overflowing. My cup runs over. That's who God is. He wants to bless us with his power and with his grace and with his filling and all of these good and perfect gifts uh, as a father gives good gifts to his children. And so he wants our day-to-day to be blessed and to be filled with good spiritual things. Now, not only is godliness profitable on a personal level, but Paul explains it's also profitable on the practical level. Timothy was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. He was responsible for the flock of believers there. And Paul showed him how a life of godliness had immense practical value for him and for his ministry, for the work God had called him to do. But, you know, the the principle is the same for all of us, even if you're not called to serve as a pastor in the church. 
First of all, godliness makes you a good minister, according to Paul. Verse 6, the word Paul uses there is not limited to the office of bishop. He do, he's, it's, when he says, hey, you'll be a good minister, he's, he doesn't say, hey, you'll be a good bishop. He uses a different word, the Greek word diakonos, and most of you can guess uh, where, what that word, we get the word deacon from it. But it, it was also a word that was used very generally. It wasn't just for the official office of a deacon, which men or women could fill, and all of us should aspire to fill the office of a deacon in the church. But even aside from that, it was frequently used in the New Testament to just refer to uh, a servant. Uh, someone who serves a master. In fact, Jesus said this in John 12, if anyone serves me, diakone, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant, diakonos, same word Paul uses, will be there also. And so Paul says, hey, being godly makes you a good servant to Jesus Christ. And so the first practical profit of living out the godly life is that it's going to make you good servants of your master. And that, of course, is the major goal, isn't it? I mean, right on that last day, what are the words that we want to hear as we stand before our king? We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And now Paul is coming to us here through his letter to Timothy and saying, here's how you become a good and faithful servant. And Paul says that if we exercise godliness, godliness, the profitable result will be that we will be good servants. And not only will we develop into great servants for our king, there will be other practical effects that profit us as well. We'll grow in our ability to discern the truth. It's going to keep us from being ripped off by religious conmen and their false teachings. We will be growing in our ability to understand God's will for our lives. We will be able to counsel others as they have questions about life and about the Lord and about different situations. Remember, Paul is repeating, repeatedly telling Timothy about instructing others, sharing the truth with them. And as Timothy exercised his godliness, he was going to be able to do that more and more effectively, more and more powerfully as the Lord worked his empowering through Timothy's life. And so living out a godly life, Paul says, is profitable for all things. All things. That's really important for us to sort of pull over and park on for a minute to focus in on. You know, we're used to physical exercises that just benefit certain groups of muscles, right, or different parts of the body. You've got chest and arms day, you do certain exercises. You've got, you know, your cardio day, which is the worst. You've got leg day, which no one does, right? You have these different, you know, sort of compartmentalized, you know, types of exercises. But exercising godliness doesn't just benefit us on one or two levels, according to the apostle. It doesn't just benefit our spiritual minds or our spiritual, you know, lives. It doesn't just benefit the ultimate eternal level. Uh, Paul is saying, listen, this is a faithful saying, godliness is profitable for all things in your life. Your spiritual health, your mental health, your emotional health, your long-term goals, your day-to-day decisions, your relationships, your struggles, your fears, your ambitions... All of these things are impacted by this powerful godliness which has been given to us through Jesus Christ. And as we exercise that godliness, it impacts every area of our life, every area, all things. There's nothing that is compartmentalized out of its influence. Paul says all things in your life, everything, everything. It's profitable for every part of your life to live out godly Christianity. 
This is one of the reasons why it's so sad when people become what we might call like Sunday Christians, right? And this is happening in our culture, not just our culture, but I mean, it happens throughout the history of the world, the history of the church. But, you know, folks who come to church and maybe are happy about it, they participate and they receive there on Sunday, but then the rest of their lives are sort of walled off from the leading and the empowering of Jesus Christ. They sort of just live a natural life the rest of the week. They open themselves up for 75 minutes on Sunday, but then that's kind of it. Then they're closed for business as far as this exercise is going. And Paul would not only rebuke them, I think he would express to them that they are truly missing out on blessing and power and assistance and protection, all of these things that God gives to his people when they walk with him. They're living the spiritual equivalent of my physical exercise life, okay? Let me, let me peer open the window for you into my physical exercise life. Once every other month, I'll do a couple push-ups, and that's it. That's it. And I think, I really should exercise. Well, in two months, I'll do two more push-ups, right? And guess what? Guess what's not going to happen? I'm not going to win a gold medal in any sport. I think we all know that. I'm fine with it, but it's reality. It doesn't matter if it's the winter or the summer games. I'm just not going to place. I'm not going to compete. I'm not going to qualify. I'm not going to win, right? Why not? Well, I'm not living the life of an athlete. I'm not trying. I mean, I wouldn't be able to even if I did try. But let's say that I had been made by God to be some kind of great Olympic athlete, but I never went to the gymnasium, and I never attempted, and I never exercised, and I never disciplined myself to do it. I never went through those actions. Okay, well, nobody's going to give me a gold medal. Even in the generation of the purple participation ribbon, no one's going to give me a gold medal, right? And we all understand that. It's obvious, I'm not in the gymnasium pressing toward the goal. And so obviously I'm not going to hit the mark. I'm not going to hit that goal ever. But so often when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, people, you know, sort of wonder, why am I not empowered to live the Christian life? Yet they don't open themselves up to be filled by the Spirit or to be led by God. They wonder, why am I not growing you know, how come I don't quite understand, you know, what's going on in my life? Or I don't understand what, I, what I'm reading when I read the Bible. And yet they don't take in his nourishment on a regular basis. People get ripped off by false teachings because they haven't allowed the mind of Christ to develop. It's not that God has shortchanged them and said, ooh, I forgot to give you the mind of Christ. I'm so sorry about that. You just got ripped off by, you know, some strange group who's pouring legalism and tying you up with their bondage. Sorry. That's, on, that's my bad. That's never the case. The Lord never fails. He doesn't shortchange. He doesn't forget to give some people gifts and, and remember to give other people's gifts. That's not it at all. It's that individuals are not training. They're not running the race. Paul told Timothy that this Christian life is one to be, quote, carefully followed, right? He said, hey, you've been carefully following these things, and he commends him. And with that commendation is the suggestion that, and this is the way of life to continue. This is the life that you've been called to. And it means to purposefully go along with what God has said and submit to his rule over your life and to allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. 
What did Paul, Paul didn't say to Timothy, okay, go out there, you're on your own, convert the whole city of Ephesus, show God you're worthy of salvation. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, hey, Timothy, here's what Jesus Christ has done for you. Here are the resources he's made available to to you. Here's who he's made you to be. This is what he's poured into your heart. These are the gifts that he's given you. And now here's how you submit to that and participate with that and allow God to operate in your life the way he wants to operate. And we note that throughout this section and really throughout the whole book, Paul is really urging Timothy to take these things seriously and to think about them and to apply them. And I'm confident that Timothy wasn't slacking. I mean, it wasn't that Timothy was like, I don't care about any of this stuff. And so Paul had to write this letter. No, it's that Timothy, like us, just needed the reminder. He needed the encouragement. And Paul was like, hey, I'm writing a couple last letters to my dear son in the faith. What do I want to like, leave him with my final like, last will and testament to him? And he said, these are the things that I want to tell you, Timothy. I'm, you know, Timothy was a seasoned, faithful servant of God out there doing a tough work. He, he wasn't a bonehead. He wasn't a greenhorn. But he still, you know, was it still benefited him to receive this encouragement and this reminder, and that means that it benefits us as well. And that brings me to the last aspect of this faithful saying. Not only is godliness profitable on a personal level and profitable on a practical level, but we're reminded that this is a pressing issue. This is an important subject. Paul thought so. It was one of his five last faithful sayings. You know, the chapter opened up there with that strong statement, the Spirit expressly says. I mean, Paul's trying to get our attention about these things. He's saying, hey, turn up the volume. Please don't miss what I'm about to say, is what Paul is writing there. And here the apostle tells Timothy that godliness is not just for improvement in our own maturity or improvement in our own ministry. It's also necessary preparation for the challenges that we're going to face on this side of eternity. There were going to be consistent attacks coming against the church, coming against believers, coming against Timothy himself, and living out a godly life, exercising godliness was going to be the necessary preparation to withstand those attacks, whether they were in the form of false teachers or the form of sliding into legalism, the form of carnal lusts. The best defense was a godly life empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul also reminds us that this is a life and death issue. At the end of our text there in verses 10 and 11, what does he remind us of? He reminds us of the issue of salvation. We're not just talking about how to live a slightly better life here on the earth, uh, though there's that component in the profitability of godliness, right? We're talking about people's eternities. We're talking about life and death issues. We're talking about people being deceived and, you know, taken away from the gospel and, and, and deceived by lies. And Paul would tell Timothy, hey, this is a pressing issue. This is a big deal. The Savior, Jesus Christ, he wants to save. He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. We're talking about men and women who needed saving and the Savior who only rescues those who believe and follow after him. Now, the chapter closes with these words, which I think helps sew up Paul's thoughts on the issue. This is verses 15 and 16. He says to Timothy, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 
And so godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. It doesn't mean spirituality for show. It doesn't mean some rigid legalism by which a person hopes to earn points with God or earn a better seat at the table. Rather, it is realizing what Christ has done and what he wants to do for us and in us and through us and then making the choice to be Christ-like and to let that mind of Christ be in us, to let him have his way, to let the Lord fill us and exercise us and develop us according to his purposes and receive his power. That's what this is about. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So you don't have to go out and figure it out on your own. The Lord is clear in the New Testament. He has given you godliness as a gift, and now you are invited to exercise it. And when you do exercise it, it is immensely profitable, not only personally, not only practically for ministry, but in all things. When we exercise this God-given godliness, putting our devotion into obedient action, believing God is going to do what he says he wants to do, there is profit not just for eternity, but for this life as well in all things. As God grows us and matures us and develops us and uses us and protects us and blesses us, all this and more because of him. And this is a faithful saying. Paul says we can hang the weight of our lives on what he has stated here. And so let's give ourselves entirely to this wonderful, powerful God. Amen.